Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. It's a podcast where John Sekatowski, Nick Gibson, and me, Andy Schmidt, discuss some of the hard theological and cultural topics in the Bible, bringing three different perspectives from three different generations. Again, John is gone for the third one in a row. He'll be back. Um, but we got Tom Flaherty. Thanks for coming on the pod, Tom. We couldn't get John, so we got John's father-in-law. Yeah, we get, that's who we. That, yeah, and we still have three different generations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, so we're, we're still now. Now, now you literally have the opportunity to call somebody a boomer, and it would be actually Nick is a boomer. <laughs> no, no, Tom, are you a boomer? Are you technically a boomer? Or there's I'm the a, one? I'm a boomer. You're a boomer, and we love boomers. We love boomers. So um, today we're going to be talking about the charismatic church. I think this is uh, this is well for me. This is a big topic because I kind of started following Christ again like two years ago in my life, and the one of the first things that I noticed was that when I go like downtown to college age ministries and stuff like that, there's this like big movement in like this charismatic and healing and like all that type of the charismatic movement was like is very big downtown with young Christians. So it's kind of the first thing that I was really exposed to as a as somebody who's getting back into their faith. And every time I've been exposed to that, I felt extremely uncomfortable. And that's probably, and that could be because there's something wrong with me or whatever. But I think that this has just been something on the, on the forefront of my mind for a long time. The charismatic church, like is what they're doing legitimate or is what they're doing? Like, is it, is it not even true? Are they lying or is there guard? Like what's going on here? So right out the gate, I, I guess I'll just ask the first question. Tom or Nick, either of you can answer. I just want to say, what, what is the charismatic church? Like, can we define it right out the gate so we so people know what we're talking about? Okay, so just in a, by way of introduction, for people who don't know, Tom is the senior pastor sure, of City sure. Church. City Church is embraces a, a charismatic idiom of ministry. Like they they wouldn't necessarily just say that, like, but they they are they want to involve the work of the Spirit intentionally and directly in the work as much as possible and that idiom of work of how to do ministry is important to them so tom has a lot of experience knows a lot of the stuff going on in the charismatic movement generally and so that's why he's here yeah that's why i'm gonna yeah. try to let him talk mostly so in your words like i mean what is the charismatic church so what the the denomination is is pentecostal okay, okay and so this all goes back to Azusa Street, um, William J. Seymour, and there was a second experience with the Holy Spirit that included speaking in other tongues. And so denominations were made. The Assemblies of God, the Church of God, were, were began in the early 1900s, and they were the traditional Pentecostal denomination. Charismatic is not a denomination and it Mm -hmm. started in the 60s where um, Dennis and Rita Bennett had had this experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit with speaking in other tongues but instead of leaving their Presbyterian denomination they stayed in it and then this kind of branched out to all different then there became charismatic Baptists and charismatic Catholics and charismatic mm-hmm. Methodists and these groups, it was no longer about having to be, have your own denomination or having to go to a Pentecostal denomination. This was just a second work of the Holy Spirit that people um, believe is for today. 
And um, in general, Andy, I would say it's a it's about the importance of the present work of the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah fifty three, we have the work that only Jesus could do on the cross. It is finished. It is past. It, we receive it and thank God for it. Only Jesus could do that work. In Isaiah 61, we have his work as the anointed one that he is anointed. Christ means anointed one. Mm -hmm. He's anointed to preach. He's anointed to open up blind eyes, to set prisoners free and this is the his ministry mm. and th- these works he actually gave an example of how to do these works that John 14:12 the works that I do will you do also and greater works than these will you do for I'm going to the father that he's still the anointed one he is the Christ but the plan was is that not only would his church reveal his beauty or his character but they would also reveal his ministry or his power. And so we see that in the book of Acts. We see both the beauty of God in the love and the sharing, and but we also see the, the ministry of Jesus. We see healing. We see miracles. We see deliverances. And so this, this dual call in America, largely we have embraced the Isaiah 53 works and the whole church is really built on the finished work of Christ and largely ignored the Isaiah 61 works that we are called to do that. He said, you are going to receive power or dunamis um, is the Greek word where we get dynamite from to be my witnesses. And in the early church with no microphones, with no organization, um, the gospel spread very quickly because of miracles and, the and same, no money and, the and no church. money <laughs> and no money. Yeah. The same is happening in China. The same is happening in Iran today. Miracles are the calling card. And yeah. though I would say this one, one of the things maybe you don't know, Andy is like, I could tell you of at least, at least seven to 10 miracles that have happened at high point. No, I mean, I mean, the, in, the, just in the 10 years I've been here, just like really like, about to get brain surgery, had all the x-rays oh, yeah. and everything, prayed for them. The two-year-old girl is perfectly fine and is fine to this day. Yeah. That's six years ago. Or a woman who had lost an ovary because she had like a cyst and they had to take it. And then she got a cyst on the other one. And she was going to lose her other ovary and go into premature menopause. And the church prayed for her. She was going to go and have her ovary removed. And it was completely better. It was the size of a grapefruit. And it was totally normal. Right, that's a high point, and yeah. we hardly ever eat, actually obey the command to pray for people to be saved. And so, like, even so, like we, it, it's true that, like, generally speaking, people say, "Well, you know, not in America, this isn't happening." But it actually is happening every day. Well, there is an attitude of skepticism about it, and there is, as Tom said, a great neglect of the ministry of the Spirit. But it actually is happening, and in charismatic churches and in non-charismatic churches. Yeah. I, I, let me say one thing to clarify, and yeah. see if you want us to go back on this again. So, since the charismatic, it was usually referred to as a charismatic renewal in the 1960s, right? That it was it was a movement of renewal in lots of different denominations. And that it's had about three major waves. That there was the, that first big 60s wave, which, and then there was another wave that happened that is usually associated with the vineyard movement. There was like a big vineyard second wave 
Um, and that was like in the like 80s, 90s, mm-hmm. right? And then there's like another third wave now that's usually associated with the movement in Bethel, California, the Reading Bethel thing. And that's like a third wave of it. And it's kind of come in these, and they're all different. They're all a little different. The first really focused on a second filling of the Holy Spirit as a distinct work with the evidence of speaking in tongues, similar to the Pentecostal, but a little bit looser than that Pentecostal formulation. The Vineyard Movement was different than that. Mm-hmm. Um, really focused a lot more on healing and was associated with Wimber and those folks, right? And then the Bethel Movement is even a little bit more different than that. And I don't think I would, I mean, you'd be better at explaining what's different between that second wave and this third wave. But there's been like, it's it's been a different, and as each generation has like appropriated this, themselves it's changed but it's still held those same basic ideas of what tom is talking about theologically okay so do you think that's fair yeah so i wanted to so i wanted to go back a little bit and when you talked about the dynamite i don't know the real word but i'll just use the dynamite the dynamite yeah. the dynamite you know um that this power that we get from christ like I, I totally i think that's like i don't think anybody would disagree that we get a power from christ but when I like when I'm thinking through that, I think the question that I have is, is that power just like the the ability to now share the gospel in its entirety and like have the courage to go do that, or is it the and this will get into our next question, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this new power of like what what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Because when we were, we have, we have a podcast called and I think you listen to it the uh, what what are the gifts of the Spirit podcast. And Nick, I think you blatantly said in there that you don't believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like a a, a real thing, right? No, I said that what I said is the baptism of the Spirit in its context in the New Testament is connected to salvation. Okay. That anybody who is saved receives the baptism yes. of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So distinguish it as a fundamentally second event, a second. I think is a phenomenological explanation, not a ontological one. So like you're talking about okay. something that people experience Yes. And I think people can have multiple increasingly intensifying experiences of the Holy Spirit. So I'm okay with people having a second distinct experience with the Holy Spirit. But it, I don't but think it's not. technically correct to refer to that as it's what the, the New Testament calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And then I was sense? on the phone with you, Tom, and you were like, you, you held that view for a long time until you experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, correct? Correct. So, so what exactly was that like? And like, what was the baptism of the Holy Spirit for you? And like, what is that? What does that mean, I guess? So, as far as baptisms, I I think that everybody that's saved is baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. Mm-hmm. And that water baptism is the outward picture of that inward experience. We are saved by our identification with Christ, that his death and his resurrection and I believe every believer has the well within them in John chapter 4 that springs up to eternal life every believer has the Holy Spirit every believer has the fruits of the Holy Spirit and everything they need for themselves in salvation okay Um, I believe Jesus had that experience with the Holy Spirit at at birth he I don't think anybody wants to question the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and he had that wisdom when he was 12 years old no one could they were amazed at his wisdom yet before his ministry when he was 30 years old yeah he had a second 
experience. He had not done any miracles until then. The first miracle was the changing water into wine. The, the Holy Spirit was already in him for himself. Now the Holy Spirit came on him for ministry, for other people. And so that would be the John 7 experience. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus would not, was not yet glorified. So, I believe that there is a, a second experience. doesn't necessarily have to be second. Um, the Gentiles in, in Acts chapter 10 did not have two experiences. They went, they went right to both saved and filled with the Holy Spirit all at once. But throughout the New Testament, um, we see different people that had two experiences. And so um, my experience was to be called up to a second experience. And, uh, and my life was dramatically changed by it. And so that's, that's why I believe in two experiences. So do you think, so what's the point of the second experience? Like, like, right, for ministry, but I think of people that I know who would, uh, for instance, I'll say like my dad, he's been a Christian for 25 years and he's never experienced the baptism of the, the Holy Spirit. And, and so what does that mean then? So is there some people that get it and some people that just don't and like that's just how it works for their entire life or like you don't does that make sense like what what is that i don't understand how it works like who it works in so the this second experience um the difficulty around it is speaking in other tongues it is the stigma that goes with the baptism of the holy spirit and that's where all of the controversy lies and so um, Jesus said, in my name, they will cast out demons and they will speak in new tongues. Jesus is the first one that said, there's going to be this new thing that goes with it. And in Acts chapter two, verse four, there's 120 gathered and they all get filled with the Holy Spirit and they all speak in other tongues. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had said, um, John baptized with water, but not many days from now, you are going to be baptized or immersed with the Holy Spirit and you are going to receive power. And so they go back and wait and they get this experience with the Holy Spirit where they speak in other tongues. Yeah. And uh, so then we, we start making our way through the book of Acts and we have an Acts 10 when Peter is preaching to Cornelius's household. It says that the circumcised believers were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit, which it's very confusing because Luke refers to it as the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some places, yeah. the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, and by Luke, he is meaning both Luke and the book of Acts too, because Luke is the author yeah, of both right. of those. Luke's, so Luke's the author of the book of Acts. Um, the circumcised believers that came with Peter were amazed that the Holy Spirit was given to the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in other tongues. Then Peter says, "So it's like proof. 
Right. right. That, okay. The, the, that their proof. proof that the baptism of the Holy Spirit had happened or that this gift had been yeah. given was them speaking in other tongues. And then Peter alludes to it. Who's going to keep them from being water baptized since mm-hmm. they received the same gift that we did at the beginning? Then we have Paul coming in Acts 19 to those who he thinks are disciples of Jesus. And he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He's speaking once again of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everybody gets the Holy Spirit when they believe, but he's speaking of this second experience. So it's like a, like a, the, the second experience is like you're, you're now like filled up in it. And like you have the whole, you always have the Holy Spirit as a believer. The second experience is now like an abundance or an overflow, an, an, an immersion, an, an immersion that leads. For, it's for ministry. It's and for so, the. It's for the purpose of other people. It's the river flowing out. Yeah. So it causes you to speak in tongues or. Well, let, let's just yeah. let, let me stay with us. Yeah. Okay. okay? So Acts nineteen, there are some disciples. He thinks our disciples. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Okay. Paul is Mister. You are not. Of Christ, unless you have the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit, but he's referencing this second experience. And they said, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. He says, what baptism were you baptized with? With John's, only John's baptism. They only knew about John. So Paul goes on, tells them about Jesus. They accept Jesus. They get baptized in water. And then Paul lays hands on them and they begin to, all 12 of them begin to speak in other tongues. So those are, mm-hmm. those are three instances of tongues. And then there's two instances without tongues. Mm-hmm. One is in Acts chapter eight, um, where it is, uh, Philip is leading revival in Samaria and they all believe in Jesus and they get baptized in water, in, including Simon, the sorcerer. And then Luke says these words, but the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them. Speaking once again of this, he made a distinction between this second experience, this gift. So they sent for Peter and John. Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Spirit. And when they laid hands on them, um, the Holy Spirit was given in such a way that Simon the sorcerer says, give me this gift that I could too. And so, but tongues is not mentioned. So was tongues there in, in my mind? Absolutely. They, there was a reason why they didn't think the Holy Spirit was given. Were, were they not happy enough? Were they not? Well, what were they looking for mm-hmm. that they could, they could determine that even though they're believers, they had not yet received the gift. And how did they, how did Simon know the Holy Spirit had been given? There was something that they were looking for. I do, I do think that they spoke in tongues there. The fifth one is in Acts chapter 9, where Ananias is told to go pray for Paul, that he might receive his healing from his eyes, and that he might be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so he prays for him, uh, gets healed, prays for him for the Holy Spirit, for him to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, and once again, tongues is not mentioned in the text. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, however, but, but like physical scales fall off of his eyes. Yeah. But, so like but, something significant really happens. But however, I I would I would Heal. say in that situation, um, even though it's not mentioned in the text, um, Paul does speak in tongues. He says he speaks in tongues more than all of you. Yet in the church, he doesn't have 
the gift of tongues that's to be used in church, but he has the prayer language. If anybody prays in a tongue, his spirit prays. He's got this private prayer language that he uses all the time, yet not the public gift that must be interpreted in church. So, so there, there are our five instances and, uh, um, uh, this is the problem with the baptism. Now the original people, the original Pentecostals, and this is still Pentecostal doctrine today, is that the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in other tongues. I.e., if you don't speak in tongues, you're not baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay? I do not believe that. Okay. You don't believe that that statement? I do not believe okay. that statement. He believes that speaking in tongues when you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit is normative. Like, it happens a lot. Yeah. I believe it is the... But I, that's why you mentioned I the believe, two other times. I believe, that, I believe that speaking in tongues is the expected evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe there are many people baptized in the Holy Spirit that don't speak in tongues for a number of different reasons. I believe they could, but I, they don't for a number of different reasons. We can talk about what those reasons are later if you want to. But, um, I do believe that, that speaking in tongues does go with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe it's the expected evidence, but the idea that they don't speak in tongues, therefore they're not baptized in the Holy Spirit, I do not believe that. Okay. Okay. Nick, do you have anything to say about that? Because I, I want to I, I hear both your guys' perspective on this baptism yeah. of the Holy Spirit. You mentioned a little bit yeah. in the last podcast. So, but. Okay, so I disagree with most of what Tom just said. However, I want to be really clear about what this means, because it means almost nothing in terms of how we live our lives. So in terms of what was happening in the salvation historical events of the book of acts he and i he may actually agree with what i'm saying but i think that it explains what happened in a way that wouldn't allow tom to, to take the conclusions that he's taking however the differences are are ultimately like theological in a way that doesn't really change much in terms of our practice so the so i agree with tom that that anybody can have multiple experiences of the holy spirit and the holy spirit works in power and that the holy spirit is seeking to do what he called the the Isaiah 61 ministry of actually releasing captives from bondage and giving people glory instead of ashes and like this ministry of like making lives whole again, bringing into real existence the redemption of the kingdom of God in a way that people can perceive it and feel it and experience it personally, not just believe in it doctrinally. That fundamental to charismatic idiom of ministry is to say, we are not only changed by the knowledge of the gospel, working itself out in our minds and then in our hearts and then in our behaviors so that the power comes through the message alone, but that direct power affects people's lives with the healings of their bodies or the casting out of demons or of God going into the human heart in the primal places of our feelings and doing a supernatural work of healing in immediacy through prayer, right? That those things happen in God. That's part of the heritage of what redemption and salvation does. Now, and, and interpreting the book of Acts and the second events, um, if you go and read most evangelical commentaries on this, what they will say is, is that there's only two delays where people believe in Christ and then later they receive the Holy Spirit. The first is at Pentecost, right? The, the disciples already believe in Jesus, right? And they haven't received the Holy Spirit until Pentecost. And then the second is the movement of the gospel to the Gentiles, that Philip goes and does the revival, they believe in Jesus, they're baptized, they don't receive the Holy Spirit. Then the Jewish leaders of the church, the Jewish head apostles, are brought in. And at that point, God pours out the Holy Spirit, 
in that most New Testament scholars today and most of the church fathers in the documents writing about the book of Acts believe that the fundamental issue there is that God intentionally withheld the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion in order to unite the Gentile church and the Jewish church. That the incredible amount of racism that existed between those two churches, that the Jews would never believe that God really accepted the Gentiles, that God providentially chose that Peter and John had to see with their own eyes his pouring out of the Spirit on these Gentile believers so that Peter could not get away from the fact that he was including the Gentiles and everyone else in this new gospel. So you're saying it's like a situational, this is an interesting situation? Right, in that the, in that the theme of Luke in the book of Acts isn't, isn't just, like if you look at it just from the Pentecostal lens, which, which I'm not saying Tom is doing, like that's the question he got asked. If you, if you just say, well, what is the book of Acts about without assuming any issue on it? The book of Acts from chapters about 5 till about 12 to 17 is about how this is becoming not just a Jewish salvation, but a global one. That the Because Jesus says what Acts is about. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then the other most parts of the earth. That that's, that's the theme that Luke is working out, and it's the theme of the end of Luke, of the gospel of Luke as well. And so what's happened, what we're seeing is, that, Paul, that Peter's leading this movement of the gospel through the, gen, the Jewish church. And then he's used as a figure of transition, taking the gospel to the Gentiles, but Peter isn't really ready. And so God does it through these first deacons first. So there's these deacons that are ordained in chapter 6. They begin to go out and do ministry. Stephen is the one who's killed. So, so there's two deacons that you see as having major ministries. One is Stephen. He's the one who's killed, and Paul stands over that, and he, he functions in the narrative to introduce Paul. Philip goes and starts a ministry to the Gentiles, where then Peter has to come in and accept the fact that the Spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles. All these unclean, disgusting people who don't deserve salvation, God has saved and given his Holy Spirit to this, like, the, the great gift, right? And so they ha- Peter has to accept that. And as he accepts that and then has his further experience with the, like the sheep being dropped from heaven and all of that, as that all happens, right, he he can't get away from it, which leads to him telling the Jewish church that, which leads to the Jerusalem council, where Paul then now comes in and says, God is saving the Gentiles. And Peter's like, yes, he is. And then James is like, we shouldn't make this hard for the Gentiles. And the whole theme of that book is, is that this salvation of God is going out to everyone. Now, I think that's the theme and it explains those two the reasons why the Holy Spirit is delayed. Jesus tells them it's going to be delayed and the Spirit is going to launch the church at Pentecost. That's expected. And it's what launches the church, right? And brings tongues brings people of different languages together who are Jewish together at that moment. And then later, he makes the church Jewish and Gentile by delaying the gift of the Spirit. But that doesn't take away the main thrust of what Tom is saying, that it is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that Christ is building his church. It's not just through the preaching of the gospel, but the display of power. So the message of repentance and faith goes forward. And accompanied with that is a very powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians, you know, did you believe this because, you know, like I just said stuff or did you experience power, right? In 2 Corinthians, when he's having a fight with people, he's like, he's like, listen, when I come, we'll see what people say, but then we'll also see what power they have. Meaning that one of the things he, th- he thought distinguished and authenticated his ministry wasn't just that he preached the message of the gospel, but that there, he had power, like that God worked through him with the power of the Holy Spirit. So even though I disagree with Tom's assessment of these five instances of the point of the Holy Spirit in Acts in their historical theological sense, and that would, that would distinguish like how, maybe how I would minister the work of the Spirit a little bit or how I would refer to certain things, 
it doesn't change at all what he's saying about the about the Isaiah 61 ministry of the Spirit, or that the Holy Spirit works in power in his church, and that that's God's intention, and there's no evidence that that was supposed to stop at some point. Does that make sense? And so, so even though I would, I do disagree with him on some some of the ways he laid that out in terms of that. I do not disagree with basically his conclusions. He and I think disagree on whether or not tongues functions as a prayer language, or if everybody can speak in tongues, and how you should interpret the end of 1 Corinthians 12. That's He just brought that up at the very end. That's a different area of disagreement between us. So I don't want people to take from what I say that because I disagree with the salvation historical way Tom lays that out relative to Jews and Gentiles, that I therefore disagree with what he's saying about the power of the Spirit. I don't disagree at all with that. So in some sense, you could argue that we're having an, there's an academic disagreement between us about how to interpret those passages of the Bible, but a very little disagreement about well, what there, there is no academic disagreement. I agree with everything you said that God that yeah. functioned in that way. Absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. Philip coming to the Samaritans, the disciples needing to see it, uh, yeah. then them seeing it together with the, with, yeah. with the Gentiles. And that the and, term baptism is used in some ways colloquially in the Bible, not only technically. So when, when Paul says that, or when, when Tom says the baptism of the spirit, I get persnickety about that because I go, I go, wait, you know, the five times that phrase is used, it's specifically referring to the ministry of Christ in his ascendant state that he will baptize, instead of baptizing just with water, as as John was baptizing just with the ministry of repentance towards God, Jesus would have a superior ministry to John that in salvation in Christ we would also be baptized in the Spirit like John baptized with water. That that's the metaphorical difference and it refers to an event that happens at salvation. However, baptism is a metaphor for being like enveloped in something, immersed, soaked, drenched, completely um, inundated with something. And so you can believe technically that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the gift of the Spirit that all Christians are heirs to at the moment of their conversion, and still say colloquially that you can receive the baptism of the Spirit later. That is an experience that is like an enveloping or a drenching, like like something happens where God, the person of the Spirit, does something that you can like sense and feel and you know has happened. And that doesn't always happen at conversion. Why don't, why don't I tell you my testimony? Yeah, I was going to ask you to, to share your Why don't I just give you my testimony of what happened to me? Yes. Um, so I got saved at, at the UW through the, the Baptist Student Union. And uh, it was a very strong discipleship ministry. And so they were discipling me and whatever they told me to do, I did. And we went over to Midvale Baptist Church for uh, service, but before they, before the service, they had a Sunday school, and there was a guy, a uh, leader in the church named Dave, and he was leading that Sunday school, and he said, uh, he said, I'm going to tell you about a second experience I've had with the Holy Spirit, and he talked about these friends telling him he needed the second experience, and he got prayed for, and he got this prayer language, and he gave a few scriptures on it and my leaders were very angry. Um, and because they were angry, I was angry because no one's going to say that there's more of the Holy spirit than what I have, because I have the Holy spirit. You can't get part of the Holy spirit. Everybody that believes has the Holy spirit. And therefore this was wrong. And the idea that everybody could speak in tongues is wrong. First Corinthians 12 says, do all speak in tongues? The obvious answer is no. Um, so he was mad. I was mad. We, we, this was, this was our, this was our stand. And, uh, 
that summer I went home and uh, and a guy in the Campus Life group was a friend of mine. He said, uh, I want you to read a book. He said, I, I don't want to argue about this. I just want you to read this book. And it was called Smith Wigglesworth, an Apostle of Faith. And I read that book. I read it all in one night. And I cried all the way through it. As a plumber, the turn of the 20th century. Wigglesworth um, was. Wigglesworth yeah. was. And uh, he had heard in another part of England that they were that they were speaking in tongues. And, and he had read about it in the Bible. So he went down there and wanted to get speaking in tongues. And they're like, no, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The, the tongues just goes a long way. He's like, no, absolutely not. And uh, for the very same reasons. Well, he was convinced he had at least as much, maybe more of the Holy Spirit than any of these jokers. And uh, the end of the week, the pastor's wife said, you know, you traveled all this way for this. Why don't you just let me pray for you? And he gets prayed for and he gets, he gets this second experience, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and he s starts moving in power where in his ministry, legs grew out and blind eyes saw and eight people were raised from the dead and just stunning, stunning miracles wherever he went. And um, I wept all the way through the, the book. And the reason why, Andy, was because my Christianity up till that point was almost entirely defined by what I did. I read the Bible. I memorized verses. I did stuff. Mm -hmm. And what I read in that book was a Christianity where God did stuff. It seemed more biblical than what I was living. When I, when I read the, the New Testament, when I read Acts, it seemed like this, this was what Jesus died for more than just somebody with really strong opinions, mm -hmm. keeping a bunch of rules and being right. And I just decided that night... I haven't experienced this, but this is now what I believe. Mm -hmm. I, I believe there's more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I, that would include what you said, just being right. I mean, that was kind of a pejorative, but like even expositing scripture. Like if you read about the early church, they talk about scripture and they use strict scripture, but that's not all they're doing. They're doing things that have right. this power of right. God in them. Right. Yeah. So I, it was maybe a month later than that. I go to a, a campus life Bible study with a leader down there. He's been there for like 40 years. He's still there. Um, and he said, uh, tonight, he said, I am going to tell you about a second experience I've had with the Holy Spirit. Very similar to this Baptist guy. And he went and told about this second experience and and he went over some of the scriptures in Acts and, and said, uh, I wouldn't tell you this if I wasn't going to give you a chance to receive it. And uh, there was like six of us there. He said, how many would like to receive it? And all of us put our hands up. And and so he prayed. We prayed one prayer together, and then he prayed over us individually. And the five teenagers that were there all spoke in tongues. I didn't. <laughs> I tried. I tried harder than they did. In fact, as I was mad at them because it just came so easily to them. I've just got my tongue. I didn't know what it was. I, I knew it had something to do with my tongue. So I got my tongue out and I'm, uh, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to speak in tongues, but it's, 
it's it's bad and and uh i said to larry the 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 leader afterwards i said uh i said i understand this is a as a gift and i believe i have received the gift i said i but i don't think i've spoken in tongues and he said yeah i don't think you have either <laughs> and uh so it was on the way home that i i i decided to just step out and of course i'd heard these other teenagers speaking and so i i started speaking out in some of these syllables and all of a sudden there were more and and i'm going all the way home and uh and i call larry when i get home i said i this is what happened he said yeah he said that's the that's the prayer language and i was like i was i was very excited go to bed that night i was actually afraid when i went to bed whether i'd be able to do it again in the morning get up the next morning decide to try it again and i start speaking in tongues and i get this thought as clear as can be this is not god this is just you and i just boom stopped and the argument was really strong because it was just me <laughs> i'm the one doing it who's to say it's god and because it feels just like like it, you're producing the symbols it's from kind of like your it's intuitive very mind. naturally it's yeah. very natural and and so and then i'm just like hold it hold it this is in the bible the bible says that he who speaks in tongues is going to edify himself um you beloved build yourselves up praying in the holy spirit build up your most holy faith praying in the holy spirit i said this is there is legitimacy for this in the Bible. I, I said to God, and I'm not saying anybody else should do this, but here's what I said to God. I will do this for the next five days without judging it. And if at that time I'm just the same, I will never do this again because this seems like foolishness. But if I am indeed edified and built up in my faith, I will believe it is from you because this is what the Bible says would be the, the fruit of it. And so that's what I did for the next five days. And uh, five days later, one kid in the group said it was like Tom was in first gear. It's like he was stuck in first gear, just raving, 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 and then shifted into fifth. And that's really what it felt like in my Christianity. My Christianity became much less about my striving and my zeal and my works and it just became more of a flow and uh i will grant that the baptism of the holy spirit was much more powerful for me than it is for most people because looking back i was really stuck in legalism i was really stuck in just kind of an outward thing and it the focus changed to me trying to be like Christ, to Christ in me, it, the, the, the focus. So it had more than just this new prayer language. It was really a new understanding of what Christianity is. It's yielding to the life of God in you and allowing it to flow. But nevertheless, it did happen like that for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I came up to, you know, that's enough of my story. Yeah, but. So I think I think it might be instructive for people because like my experience was like almost literally the opposite of yours, and so so like 
you want me to tell mine? Yeah. I'll try yeah. to make it a little short because I don't think I need to add quite as many details. Um, so I actually came to faith in a charismatic ministry in college called Basic in upstate New York. And it was pretty close to Pentecostal, but mostly charismatic. Wonderful people. Not really legalistic. I mean, they were really great folks. And like in, in most cases, the way the ministry worked is you had your weekly meetings. And then twice a year, there were retreats. The retreats are like big worship nights, great speaker. And then there would be like a receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues. If you already have that, then receive more gifts of the Holy Spirit. Usually the gift of prophecy is what it was focused on, right? And so I had read my Bible, like all the relevant passages, and I absolutely believed in the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit. And um, I did. I wasn't totally sure that the gift, the baptism of the Spirit was literally what they were saying, but I believed that the, that the experience, the phenomenon was fully legitimate and that God wanted to do it. And so I went up every time that they had an altar call, every single one. I never, I mean, I always wanted to receive this gift, right? And I would go up and people would pray for me and everybody would speak in tongues or a lot of people would speak in tongues, not everybody, but a, a large portion of people would speak in tongues and I wouldn't and I would try and I would maybe say some things. I wouldn't say something if I felt like it would be dishonest, like truly just made up, but I would say, do I did whatever people told me to do. And this went on for years, my whole undergrad, all four years. And then during that time, there was something called the the Toronto Blessing in Toronto, Canada, where it was during that like vineyard movement. And there was like a big outpouring of the spirit. And so I went up to that too. And so um, I went to the meeting and they did the whole thing. And I went and the elders of that church prayed for me. And I was like, this is going to be great. And um, by that, well, I say that. By that point, I was a little jaded about whether or not I was going to receive this gift, but I was willing to drive five hours to Toronto just to see just what was happening, and maybe that would happen. And the same thing happened again. Like, people prayed for me. I was, as yes, Lord, as I knew how to be psychologically, and I just, nothing happened, right? And so I say this, and like, so my wife, Alexi, who was my girlfriend in college, right? She went to these meetings. She received the baptism of the Holy Spirit or that, ex- that second experience. I actually prepared her theologically for it. Here's what it's like. This is what the Bible says. It's a good thing. This is what it says about tongues. It's a biblical gift, all that kind of stuff, right? And she received that experience. She spoke in tongues, right? Never me, right? And so that's kind of been my experience through this is that like I, and then as that went on, I began to bump into people who had had the same experience as me. And they, and they felt, they felt, and that ministry didn't do a very good job of making sure people who did not receive that gift didn't feel like second-class believers in that ministry. In fact, they were. because, And I, I can say this objectively because um, if you spoke in tongues, you really were in another class ministry-wise in that ministry. And I think Tom would probably reject that idea generally. Um, because they like they wouldn't let me be a small group leader. Even they they let people I led to Christ and discipled be small group leaders because they spoke in tongues, but they wouldn't let me be a small group leader um, because I didn't I didn't exhibit those effects right. And I and I didn't I didn't actually believe everybody could receive the gift of speaking in tongues and prophecy. I thought that God, as according to First Corinthians twelve, distributed the gifts. The Holy Spirit, who is God, distributes the gift just as He determines. It says. And I believe that that meant that it was diversified and that though many people received the gift of speaking in tongues or prophecy, it wasn't everyone. And that that was fine. And that maybe there were reasons for that. Like Tom was saying, like he, he thought maybe his experience was a little bit more intense, partly because he may have been increasingly stuck in legalism. And I think people's experiences sometimes are relative to that. And so I think what can happen in charismatic churches is that people with the most profound experiences end up on stage. 
And then that becomes the psychological norm for people. And they're like, oh, I should be experiencing just that. And that's a pastoral failing, right? The, the pastor is supposed to step in and be like, okay, no, I need to show people a diversity of experiences with the Spirit that are real experiences with the Spirit so that people don't feel rejected by the Spirit, right? But what can happen, though, is, is that somebody like me can easily say, all those people are fakes because I didn't receive it. What happened to them wasn't real because I didn't receive it. Right? That's easy. That's easy to do. I know a lot of people who did that. But that's that doesn't help. Right? That's why we're both we're both coming from the scripture. We've both had different experiences. I'm very sad about yeah. what happened with Nick and and I just think that there's a there's a mess in the charismatic world for two main reasons. Mm-hmm. Number one is identity. <laughs> when you get your identity in a spiritual gift or a spiritual experience, it, it, then you, you, you wear it like a badge. And then if, if people haven't had that experience that then they're somehow not the same as you or not as spiritual as you, or there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's just a mess that that's it. it Gifts can never be our identity. John, John, the beloved disciple, well, he called himself the disciple Jesus loved. That's the safe identity. I'm loved by Jesus, and that's amazing. You said in your testimony that it like did the, it had the opposite effect on you. Was that your identity was like was now it was about God and it wasn't about you, right? Like what you're saying now is that identity is like because that's what I see in young people. And, and, and that's why I'm so like skeptical of the charismatic movement. Cause I'm like, I, I go downtown and I see all these different movements down there. And a lot of them are based upon these gifts. And if you have these gifts, then you're some great young right. Christian. And if you don't, you're a second class citizen. And right. But that has, right. that so, has more to do with the youth than the theology. Right. Sure. So, so my identity went from performance, which is one of the other traps right your identity can be in my performance i've memorized this amount of scripture i have a quiet time every day i right. you know do this do that do the other thing and it, it's a it's a real trap it yeah. it, it breeds insecurity right. and having your identity in your gifts is very similar right. and and now I have to prove that I'm anointed and I have to prove that I'm gifted and I have to, and I have to be better than somebody because that's part of my identity is, is it's based on insecurity still. So, you know, John was the, the great apostle and the great prophet. And he said, here's my identity. I'm loved. That's your safe identity. What's your second thing? The second reason that cares my second problems. reason why it's a mess is First um, Thessalonians five nineteen through twenty one. So Paul says this: Nobody has the guts to do the job do of not, judging. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Rather, judge them and cling to what is good. So let let me just unpack that whole passage for a second. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Here is the problem. You want the Holy Spirit to come. When the Holy Spirit comes, he comes speaking. And he uses men. He uses women, which is bad enough. But now he uses sons and daughters 
are going to prophesy. They're going to speak. People that are immature, people that have not arrived yet, people that he's go- the Holy Spirit comes and they're going to prophesy. They're going to start speaking. Yeah. So you've got immature people, poor and uneducated people speaking and they're saying God is speaking to them. Now, if you if you if you say no, we don't want any of that because somebody's going to say something that's wrong, you're going to quench the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit when he comes, he's going to come speaking. Do not despise prophetic utterances or you're going to quench him. And the church needs the active presence of the Holy Spirit. The church needs the surprise of God. The number one problem in the church in America is boredom. Boredom leads to a thousand. Oh, actually, I'm not even going to say that. Certainly not Nick's presence because Nick's probably got 10 other things that are bigger problems, but which I'll probably agree with. So I'm not going to say that. You should freely express your opinion. Say, I'm just going to say it is a problem. Um, there is no expectation. No, I would love to hear your argument for why you, you're saying that's the biggest one. I, I think that's be fascinating. No, I'm not going to say that. I'm not. I took that back. Do you think? Why? Because you think I, it's divisive. I think it would be interesting. I'm not. I'm not going to say that. Okay. Uh, I do think boredom leads to all kinds of other sins. Oh, I agree with that. And 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 and, and the the lack. Anyway, when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to be speaking. And if you shut down every present voice of the Holy Spirit and say God only can speak in Scripture you are going to go without much of the Spirit's activity. Now, I totally understand why people despise prophetic utterances because you can't have people say, God's telling me this, God's telling me this, and something's opposite, something is, it's not anything God's necessarily saying. It's your opinion and you're putting God's name on it, which makes it way worse To be wrong is one thing, but to say God told you, it just, it it makes a mess. Mm -hmm. So to clean up that mess, Paul says, you're going to have to judge prophetic utterances, but don't judge them cynically as if God doesn't speak, judge them to look, to cling to what is good in new Testament prophecy you're going to have some hamburger helper because the Holy Spirit's now within people. Old Testament prophecy came from the outside. The voice of God came from the outside. If you were wrong, you got killed. You got stoned. New Testament prophecy is coming from within the hearts of believers. The Holy Spirit is passing through a personality. And so the idea that God told me and that that is perfect, that's, not, that's illegal in the New Testament, except for Scripture. Scripture's perfect. <laughs> But you having something from God, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how mature you are. I don't care how great the experience was. Paul says, if an angel in heaven gives you something different than what I've given you, let him be a curse. Everything has to be judged by scripture. Mm-hmm. We've got to be willing to judge yeah. or you're going to end up with anybody that's judging. See, 1 Corinthians 12 is about the gifts. 1 Corinthians 13 is about the motive, love. And 1 Corinthians 14 is about pastoring the gifts. Mm -hmm. It is about control. People in charismania oftentimes will plead that you've got a a spirit of control because you're trying to pastor it. And 
and God's telling me to do this, and God's telling me to do this, and God's telling, and let's just let the Holy Spirit lead. Well, oftentimes, let the Holy Spirit lead means let the flesh lead, and the person that's got their identity most in their gift is going to dominate everything, and it's going to be a very unhealthy experience <laughs> for everyone there. So you're going to have to pastor it, and when you pastor it, people that have their identity in it are going to be really mad at you because you shut me down. And the truth is, is pastoring it does not shut down the genuine. The Holy Spirit wants to come and he actually likes it when pastors pastor. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think... But you said, you're saying that's one of the big problems. So you think that people... The leaders just oftentimes don't have the guts to be like, yeah, that, let's not follow that. No, I think, I think what's going on with Jezebel has nothing to do with her being a woman. Jesus had a perfect example to say women should not be speaking in the church. Jezebel, here's what I've got against you leaders at Thyatira. You have, you have tolerated Jezebel, not because she's a woman, but because she calls herself a prophetess. And she is teaching my people and she's leading them into immorality. And, and mm -hmm. you haven't had the guts to confront her. This, you is haven't. In, this is in Revelation chapter two, for those who want to read it later. Re Revelation chapter two. You have not, it, the, the, these rebukes in Revelation are all to the leaders of the church. Mm -hmm. You have, you have tolerated this and, and it's not just affecting Jezebel, it's affecting all of her children. She's influencing a lot of people and because you didn't have the guts to pastor, probably because she's a prophetess, probably because she has genuine gifts and God told her, and who knows, maybe she's wealthy as well, but mm -hmm. she is a shaker and a mover and nobody wants to stand against her. And Jesus is upset and it's not just affecting her, it's affecting all these people under her. Mm -hmm. Pastors have to pastor, and it is easier to pastor a church where none of this is allowed. Yeah, that's so true. We're, we just let's just not have any of this. God doesn't speak now, except through the Bible, mm -hmm. and then we don't have to worry about it. We'll just be secret sensitive. Yeah. Let's just make this really comfortable for non Christians, mm -hmm. and because that stuff's weird anyway. Right. We don't really want the weird anyway, and so let's make it something that non Christians can understand and enjoy and give them a felt need that we address. And the only thing that we take out is the manifest presence of God, which is actually the one thing that non-Christians need. Mm -hmm. They don't need to be able to fully understand everything that's happening. They desperately need something. When we go, okay, I'm the power of God gets people's it. attention yes. all through the, the new Testament. It, the otherness, that's why they're coming. They're not coming for good music and a good speech. The idea that the church is going to have a better, better music and a better speech than the world, yeah, probably not. There's so much vanity they, in pastors and their preaching. Right, that they can do. They it. need something other. They need, and I pray this all the time that when people leave our church, they will not say, "Wow, what a great preacher," or "What great worshiper." Wow, that building was so contemporary. I want them to leave saying this: "Oh my, Jesus is alive." Yeah. I can't we're, believe he works through those we're dopes. We're our hearts. But exactly. he was there. Yeah. Exactly. In spite of yeah. them, my heart is burning. God is alive. We have been wrong. Yeah. God is alive. That yeah. is my prayer. 
for what will happen in church. Yeah. Let me say a couple of things in response yeah. to what he said. Um, the first is I think every believer, especially if you're a younger person, you're on campus, like the kind of thing, you need to sit down and study your way through 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. And do not skip chapter 13 in the middle. Right. Really, really right. carefully. Because what you're going to come away with is an, an absolute direct and full affirmation of the power of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And a like sensible govern governance related to them and how God is distributing them for the good of the whole church, for the end of love, for the development of his people, and with a demand that they be properly judged and discerned without despising them. That dynamic lays out really well if you study it carefully. So everybody in the charismatic ministries, non-charismatic ministries, whatever you want to call them, those three chapters, you should re- read and reread them and, and learn to interpret them well. And you, what you'll find is that it, not all speak in tongues, yes, and like a verse later, he says, seek or pursue the gifts of the Spirit as an imperative command. And in chapter 13, he says that these gifts won't pass away until perfection comes, until we see Jesus as we are now seen, which does not refer to the, the coming of the New Testament. It refers to the return of Christ, which has not yet happened. And so you'll, you'll get these things kind of squared away so that you won't be an extremist and you'll recognize that... Um, that you need to be open to the sword. I think, I think another thing Tom is saying is that, well, I don't know, Tom didn't say this. One of the, the third reason I think that the charismatic church is screwed up is because it has to be, because it's experimental by nature, right? Like if you have, if you have a situation where everything is controlled, then of course everything is going to be ordered and it's not going to look out of control. But if you have anything where the, the very heart of the thing is experimental in nature. It's, it's improvisational and it's dynamic, right? It's, you're going to have moments where it seems chaotic. It's not going to always look right. In some ways, it's the difference between like football and basketball. Like in a football play, everybody has their exact move that they're going to do and they need to do it within six inches of what they were told to do so it works for everybody and it has to be ordered that way. In basketball, there's supposed to be kind of like a flow, an improvisational flow to it. You're supposed to read each other and move off of each other and keep in step with what's happening, right? And that's the metaphor Paul uses in the book of Ephesians. He says, like, we need to, to keep in step with the Spirit. Like, there's an improvisational nature to it. And as people are intuitively trying to figure out how to do that, you get a much more chaotic result, especially if the movement is a renewal among younger people. So you got all these issues of young people with a improvisational, experimental thing that's happening that, like, that has these events that's happening through time because of, things are happening, right? Like, like non-charismatic evangelicals tend to think... Um, synchronically, like, everything's happening at the same time because it's all ideas. And you're just putting the ideas in the right place so that they can be ordered in you the right way, right? The charismatic way of looking at things is different. Yes, you do that. There's a synchronic, like a how all things work together generally in terms of ideas. But there's a diachronic. There's something happening through time. There, the Holy Spirit is working in real time and space. And so the idea that, like, you could have this experience of the Holy Spirit today and a completely different one tomorrow, and it really change you or change what's happening, and that then you have to change to stay in flow with that, functions perfectly within their dynamic, whereas non-charismatic evangelicals are often really allergic to that. They don't want to have to deal with that kind of improvisational change. That's one of the reasons why you tend to get, I think, more extroverts in the charismatic movement, and you tend to get more people who like to ha- are, are hiring what psychologists call openness in, in the charismatic movement. They, they, they like new ideas. They want stuff to change. They like that stuff. You get m- more people who are like disagreeable in, in like more reformed char- er, er, evangelical, where they're just kind of like, no, I disagree with that. That's wrong. Are you like, saying that- there's any good, there's good to that? So, so what you were saying about having to ha- have to be able to shift and move as following the spirit compared to 
what like the more intellectual person would like order things out. The order that to me sounds like crap. I, I, like people who are trying to order things out to me sounds like they're just control freaks and they don't actually want to follow what Christ says. And and following the flow of the Holy Spirit while it can be messy. Doesn't that seem like it aligns more with what Christ was teaching? So, you I, would I, say that I, as a I, basketball player. I, no, yeah. I, I, <laughs> Andy, I think it's I think it's 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 both. And, yeah. Okay. It's so, just hard so, to do. Both. So here's here's Matthew twenty two twenty nine. Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees, which are the guys that don't really believe in the Bible, and he says, "You are an error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God." Yeah. To, to have truth, it's not enough just to have scriptures. You also have to have experiential power. Now, it's also, you're going to get off if you just have power. If, you're just, if you just want to feel and you just want to experience. That is a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for error. You end up with personality. This is where cults come from. A lot of cults started out as charismatics. They're charismatic preachers that are gifted, genuinely anointed, and then they use their influence the wrong way. I mean, Jesus even said it. You're going to say to me, we did miracles in your name. We, we prophesied in your name. Depart from me, you who never knew me. Is that what it does say? You're going to say to me? Is that what it says? In Matthew 7, he's like, he, you, he, says that many, he says, many will come to me on that day and say. Oh, that's okay. Didn't we do all these things in your name? He'll say, yes, but I never knew you. Depart from me. Oh, okay, that's important. Because so, the other day I was talking to somebody and they were like, they didn't mention the you said part. It was just like we can't. We did all these things. Well, well, no. The passage in Matthew seven assumes that's all true. That they did do miracles. There, there can be anointing, the gifts and calling. This is a very complicated subject. I'm not sure you want to go there right now. But okay. I, I want to just finish this other thing. Yeah. So, so there are two things that are really, really important. Both the scriptures and the experimental, experiential power of God, the experience of God. Both are important. And so the evangelical church tends to be more on just the the scripture side and will allow a little of this. And the charismatic side tends to flow on we're going to have more of this and little of this. And this is why we are not listed as a charismatic church just a non-denominational church. I don't want to be more over on the side. I want to, and I've, I've said this to Nick many times, it's, it's our whole thing for ICS, the Impact Christian Schools. We want people to have a sharp mind and a flowing heart. It's not one or the other. I don't think we're going to reach Madison if we are not thinking, if we are not biblical, if we if our minds are not washed with a biblical worldview and are not to, able to engage intellectually with our minds, with people. But I also think if that's all we have, we will not reach Madison. We also need a flowing heart. We need a heart that is not afraid of spiritual gifts, that is not ignorant of spiritual gifts, that is able to flow with the Holy Spirit. It's not one or the other. It's both and. And I, I think the enemy tries to set the church against each other. And, mm-hmm. you know, both pointing fingers at the other saying, you know, you guys are too much like this or you're too much like that. And um, it, we, we need both. We need, we need the scripture and the power. I think that, that like leads into my next question about the church specifically. And I think like the whole point of this 
Well, what I think the whole point is is to be able to most effectively share the gospel and bring people to Christ and how they can live out their life for Christ. And so when I think of the charismatic church, and I won't call your church the charismatic church, uh, but but more charismatic than High Point, the church that I go to and that Nick is a pastor of. So yeah. that's why I use the language of an idiom of ministry rather than a theology. That like it's a it's an impulse. It's a it's a feel. It's an intuition. It's a commitment more than it is like a distinct theology. Yeah. So I'm gonna so I'm gonna ask both of you guys this, and I'm gonna be blunt. I, I wouldn't bring any of my non-Christian friends to either of your churches, and. I'm not saying that to be like a jerk. I just, right now, I wouldn't do that. And here's the reason why. I'll, I'll break it down for, for both the churches. Starting Well, so with with the High Point Church, with Nick's church, it's too intellectual, and they get there. And even sometimes I go, and I don't know what you're talking about on stage sometimes. And so my friends just don't think that way who are non-Christians. And if I brought them to church, they'd be like, I don't ever want to go back. That was boring, and it was... I don't want to sit through this and it's just not what I want. And I know that that's what they say. And then I wouldn't bring them to, to, to your church, Tom, because the, I think they might think it is weird. Like you're talking about some of the charismatic stuff might, they might think it was weird or, or like if I brought them to freedom fighters, they might think that was a little weird and a little bit off and like they'd feel very uncomfortable. And so do I think that either the way that either of those things are like wrong or, or evil, like that you're intellectual and that you, uh, are you know you you like the healing and, and all that? I think that those are great things. And when I went to your your Freedom Fighters thing, I learned a lot about healing, and I thought it was really cool. But at the end of the day, for me, this is about like sharing the gospel and preaching the gospel. And I want to bring people to church. I, I mean, I want to bring people to my church and not be afraid that they're never going to come back. And so, how do you have you, you incorporate the spirit in your church while not having it? be a place where people are going to want to run away because it's super weird. And how do you then bring the spirit into your church to, to, for the same thing? Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Okay. Well, for, for starters, I mean, freedom fighters was a Sunday night and it yeah. was training for the army of God. This yeah. was people that were being asked as believers to get trained to, for the purpose of bringing the presence of God outside of the church, okay. because this is m mostly where the gifts of the spirit are in the new Testament are not in the church. They're out outside the church in the marketplace out there where people are and to learn how to walk is naturally supernatural. Why do I say naturally supernatural? And John Wimber was the greatest at this. Don't be weird. <laughs> Don't scare people by your presentation. Thus saith the Lord God. You're you're creepy. Yeah. You know, just say, I feel like God might be saying this to you. What do you think about that? And he said, you don't have to put any extra words or yell or anything. If it's really God, it will witness with them and they will experience something. And Andy, yes, it will be weird for them because they haven't trafficked in that realm before. They... they when they experience something outside of their present experience, it is weird. And sometimes people do say, I never want to go back for the same reason that she, Peter said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Um, that doesn't, to make church so that your non-Christian friend is not in any way going to be confronted and just feel comfortable and say, wow, I will go back. Is our goal really for them to come back or is it for them to have a chance to experience Jesus? And 
if they get offended by Jesus, well, welcome to the club. A lot of people get offended by Jesus. But I get, let's not offend them as the church by just being weird or by being yeah, yeah, stupid. Yeah. Or but if they get offended with Jesus, well, at least they had a chance. Yeah, uh, yeah, um, and I'm not saying that like, yeah, when I meant like offended and, and that they think it was weird, like, of course they're going to think the gospel is weird because it's unnatural. I, I totally, and I'm all for people being bold and going out and sharing their faith because it's a very hard thing to do. And a lot of Christians in America just don't do it because it's hard to do. I think, yes, that's going to be looked at as weird. But I think, yeah, I think you answered that question really well. I, I think that the way you should determine whether to bring your non-Christian friends to one of the worship services at City Church is to have a have a spike ball match with Tom and his team. And whoever wins, you know, determines it. Yeah, I think I'd win. Because <laughs> I, I thought I heard that last time you played Tom, you got your butt kicked. That did happen, but I've been, I've been practicing. And also, Tom is sneaky athletic. Tom is sneaky athletic. When I first met Tom, I did not think that you were going to be very athletic, uh, mostly because of age. And then we played basketball, and then we played spike ball, and you were like the best players of both of them. But I've been practicing, so I'd be willing to I've do I've heard it. you're a pretty good quarterback, too, that you can drop it in there. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, we could do that. Yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, part of, so, it's hard to be all things all people at the same time, right? One of the reasons why I came to Madison was because Madison, a lot of secular people in Madison think of themselves as highly educated, highly intellectual people who have very rigorous reasons why they don't believe. And part of what the idiom of my ministry is to specifically go against that spirit and that attitude is to say, okay, you you want to you want to be smart? You want to talk? You want to talk about things at a at a higher level? You want to think more difficult thoughts? Let's do that. Let's really consider together um, this from a higher, a little bit higher than you get from most pastors. Which is why I love Nick. I love he's a gift to the body of Christ. He's a gift to Madison. Madison a few years ago was. Uh, called the smartest city in America on a number. They had a number of different parameters, graduates from college, postgraduate degrees. There's, this is a smart city. And so um, I, I love Nick. I love having him preach at our church. I love having, he trains our teachers at the school. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love that we're the body of Christ and that I don't Mm -hmm. have to say what how nick says it i don't i can say yeah. it differently than him and that there's somebody over at blackhawk saying it different and somebody over at door creek and and then we've got lighthouse and we've got mount zion and praise god that we've got all of these different voices uh and 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 that different churches are really necessary to disciple different types of people and um, thank God for thank God for the church. I I want to push back a little bit. I, I I agree. Thank God for the church, but the church is not working here. It's not in America and in Madison. I I, I can't. I I get to a point where I'm like, yes, there's good things happening, but like young people just aren't. No, they don't understand the gospel. They're not understanding. They're not hearing the gospel. They're not doing. The, they aren't hearing it in its entirety. The, 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 the downtown camp, uh, campus ministries are sharing the good parts of the gospel and not the entire thing. There's a lot of crap that's happening downtown. And I'm like, High Point has so many great resources. You know, City Church has so many great resources. But I, I don't know if, I know, and you can tell me if you yeah. do, if you guys have like an evangelism team or do we have evangelism team at High Point? It doesn't seem like 
there's a lot of outreach and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people. And I, I focus on young people because I'm young and because there's a lot of young people that listen to this podcast. For now, yeah. Um, female young people. Actually, the statistics are funny. They say 44% of the people on Spotify are from 45 to 59 years old, which is weird. So, so Andy, I believe that there have been two great awakenings in our country. Um, and awakening is different than revival. Revival is for the church coming back to life. And awakening is when Jesus is not just talked about in the church, but he's talked about in the bars. He's talked about everywhere. I believe the great need of America is a third great awakening. Um, last Thursday night, I, I shared my heart. Um, I believe that the church needs to, in this hour, is being invited again to go into revival um, and to, to... To prepare for an awakening. To, to go beyond, I, I, I feel, and you can listen to the message on Thursday night, I feel like we have been in the wilderness and where you get your you get your identity in the wilderness and 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 we're loved and we're favored sons and daughters and that's great and that's wonderful but you you never advance the kingdom in the wilderness to advance the the to advance the you got to become the army of god you can't just be the family you got to be the army and and so it was about what is what does it mean to be the army of god and of course there's very different dynamics in an army it, it's mm -hmm. it, you're not aiming for easy you're it, you expect there to be a cross you expect it you're going to have to face giants the, the, the attractive thing about the wilderness is there's no real enemies there there's no you, you're not really risking your life for the wilderness except the, the, truth is, the truth is, is the people die in the wilderness and the next generation is going to die in the wilderness. If we don't, if the church doesn't raise up, we need to, to be not just the family of God in this out. We need to, we need to be the army of God. We need to embrace the cross and we, we need, we need to put on courage and carefulness and we need to take ground. And I believe God wants to pour out his spirit. I believe if we go back to the wilderness again, I believe the the body of Christ in America right now is in this Kairos time where God's inviting us to go in. I believe Kairos is Greek for an appointed time. It, it's an appointed time. It's an opportune time. It's it's like when they were at the edge of the promised land and they, they there was a there was a time that they had to go in. And once that time elapsed they couldn't go in anymore. They were going to be in the wilderness uh, uh, again. I believe we are in that time. I believe if the church in America does not go in this time, because I believe there was an invitation 25 years ago in the Toronto or Pensacola revivals, there was an invitation to go in. If the church doesn't go in at this time, I believe America as we know it, it will be unrecognizable to us. I believe this... Uh, I'm just going to give, I'll say this one last thing. I don't believe the great prize for the enemy is America. Why? I think he's already got America. He can push this button, this button, this button. He can cause chaos anywhere. The prize that the enemy is after, he wants to rob the church of the, the, the revival God has promised to America. I believe there is a revival on the table. And I believe the enemy is trying to distract the church right now by politics, by race, by a hundred, and, and get them strongly opinionated in, in, in these distracting things and get their eye off the ball. God wants 
to his church in humility and prayer and repentance to come into the fullness of the life of God and to become the army of God. And is is the army a mess right now? Yes. Are, are people not even, they're just worrying about themselves? Yes. Are there weapons on the ground or weapons in their hand that they don't even know what they are? Yes. But never count God out, Andy. Because he can take five loaves and two fish and the rational person will say, what is this? Among so many, the crowd is at least 15,000 if you include women and children. 5,000 men. What is this compared to the great need out there? And Jesus says this to his church. You know what? Bring it to me. Bring it to me. Dude, don't give up on Jesus. Jesus is able to take however unimpressive high point churches, city churches, and how you feel about the church. Jesus, when Jesus gets a hold of his church, if we give him everything that we have, he will give us everything he has. And the world hasn't seen that yet. And and I, I believe the great need of America is a third great awakening. I actually believe it's on God's schedule. And he's inviting us right now. So the 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 feeding five thousand for those who may not be, uh, to, yeah. Anyway, so um, Matthew fourteen and Mark six. If you want to go read that, um, I, let me. I want to say a couple things relative to what Tom said because I, I partly agree with him. I partly don't. So first of all, I, one of the reasons I got into ministry, and this is I think different than Tom. Tom came in second career, but part of the reason I got into ministry is exactly the same feeling you have. It's one of the reasons why I both tolerate and enjoy you, Andy, is because. When I was 19, I listened to this sermon being preached in my college town at this church, which I thought was the closest thing our town had to a church that could reach people. And I felt like as a 19-year-old, I could have gotten up on stage at that moment with no preparation and preached at least twice as good a sermon. Now, there's probably I was probably wrong, but that's how I felt. And it was that, and, it, and it, part of, some of that was pride, that I thought I could do better. But part of it was a jealousy for my generation who was going that they didn't seem to care about and who seemed to be who wasn't at the church. I was on campus all day and, and these folks didn't care about that church. And I wanted them to know Christ. And so that the jealousy for them to know Christ, um, and that the church wasn't doing it, got me into ministry and led me to do what I'm doing today. And so part of it is if you feel that way, and for any anybody who's listening to this who feels that way, you have to make the decision whether or not the church, the state of the church is something for you to criticize or whether it's your problem. And if and I believe that because Jesus was unconditionally committed to the church as his bride, that even when she behaved like a whore, that it was our job to work in the stead of Christ for her betterment and for her to be prepared spotless and without regal for Christ, right? So I, I would say anybody who's upset at the church, if you really care, you will work for her beautification, not against her, right? The second thing I, I want to say is that if you look at the times where the United States has had a great awakening, so one of my minors was in American history, part of it is what Tom is talking about. But this is one of the areas where, and I think Tom might agree with this, I'm not sure, that people of charismatic of a charismatic mentality will see God's providences and what's going on, what's happening, and like very strongly in terms of like the power of the Spirit and the move of the Spirit, Right? Historically, as I look at the providence of God in the history of America, the times when those awakenings happened, there was a confluence of a new work of the Spirit, 
a raising up of a new generation of leadership in a particular situation in America that lent itself to a vacuum in which the gospel could meet, like could speak in profoundly. So in the first great awakening, there was um, a, there was strong religious faith in America that had died over two generations. And so there was a spiritual deadness on the East coast and there was profound expansion into the, into the middle West. And so you had all these frontier towns that were in chaos, basically, morally speaking, church attendance was below 10%, I think in America as a whole. And you had completely dead religiosity up and down the Eastern seaboard, especially among the Puritans. Cause the early Puritans were incredibly godly people. They weren't, they, they weren't anything like the caricature, but two generations later, the legal were made with but without the heart and spirit of the early Puritans. And so Edwards stepped up into that and then really George Whitfield was the greater voice of the of the First Great Awakening, who came and just preached the gospel into that whole mess. And America was kind of like ready. It was like in a place where he spoke into something. Same thing in the early the very early church um, there, you had this extremely hierarchical Roman society in which people were treated like garbage. Women and slaves made up the majority of the society and they were treated like they were worse than nothing. All of a sudden this movement rose up that said Everybody is equal before God. Everybody bears God's image. Nobody should be mistreated. There should be justice for all people. Christ can save everyone. It doesn't matter where you're stratified. I mean, in Greek, in Roman religion, your only shot at getting to Elysium was to be either a hero or a governor. Like, it was for, you had to be a god to get in among the gods. And so, the religion had nothing to say to the to the common people. They either believed in Epicureanism, there was no afterlife, or Stoicism, you, could, you couldn't know. And so, the gospel came into that milieu and was a message that it was ripe for. The majority of the early church was slaves and women because they were like, dang, yeah, right? And so and that was also true in the Second Great Awakening. We were approaching the Civil War. There was a crisis surrounding slavery and the relationship between the North and the South. Church attendance had dropped to another all-time low in America. Like, things were coming apart. And the Second Great Awakening stepped into that time period. And there were actually a number of religious revivals. I mean, that's how we got Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and, like, and... I think Christian science all arose in that 1840s and 1860s. But you also had this second great awakening of these mostly Western preachers, Baptists and Methodists, who basically preached in these places, and they were rough folks. And a lot of them were relatively politicized. Most of them were hardcore abolitionists. And they were unapologetic about it. They were unapologetic about that they were against alcohol. And a lot of them were like really tough nut people, like Peter Cartwright. Um, at one of his revivals, people were drunk. There were a bunch of drunk guys heckling him. He got off stage, beat up ten of them, put them all in the front row, got up on stage, preached. They all came up to the altar call, right? And so it was that kind of like there was there was a, a lost sense of what masculinity should look like. There was a lost sense of what justice should look like. It was a highly politicized culture. And at that moment, God raised up His church, and uh, there was a huge revival. But that revival came late, and it wasn't enough to prevent a civil war, right? Um. I think you could argue that there was a kind of move of the spirit even in the civil rights movement, but I think it I think it aborted because the civil rights leaders didn't hold to the gospel. They they got led astray by the social gospel, and I think there was a certain amount of infiltration of communist of communist influence in that movement. Though I don't think King was a communist, I think there was a certain kind of infiltration of a secularized view of things, and there were some things that broke that down. I think now, I think there is a move of the spirit to revive the church so that it can lead to awakening. I think that's true. But I think what's also the case is there's a generation of young people that need to decide whether they're going to spend their lives for this or whether they're going to play video games in their mom's basement or whether they're just going to try to make a bunch of money. Your generation has to decide if they're going to participate. And if you're going to participate, you have to burn to ashes the hopes you've had for your life that have something to do with other than the kingdom of God.
Right, that's big. And then secondly, there is a ripeness to what's happening in our culture. That political division, the confusion about whether or not there's such a thing as a male and a female even, um, the fact that we've tried a bunch of policies to make life better secularly and things keep getting worse rather than better. There's a hunger about like what could really happen. There, there are all these things that are happening presently, the breakdown of the family, an increase in psychological problems, the increased medication of the American public, crises of obesity and food issues and economic... Like, like there's a bunch and the pox americana is falling apart we're printing 55 cents of every dollar we're living america's living lifestyle it can't possibly afford like this is all coming to a head and it could be the destruction of all things and like but or it could be a moment of revival where god could come in as the one true god and all these other gods could be shown exactly for what they are as idols mute lifeless incapable idols and there could be a great turning to god if the church would renew itself serve Christ wholeheartedly, embrace the power of the Spirit as well as the full truth of the Scriptures, understanding the institutional importance of the local church, raise up the best leadership we can in a new generation, and become the army of God, right? That preaches the peace of Christ. And embrace the ministry of Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 61. If we did that, then I think there would be an incredible renewal in the United States, not so that we could, quote, have our country back, but so that we could be the country we we should have been all along for all people of all ethnicities and genders and hurts and difficulties and be a blessing to the world. Instead of like what we what America exports now is not blessing the world. You know, that's why they hate us in Iran and places like that and have resisted the gospel because they've resisted a lot of what America has created in its idolatries and shipped everywhere in the world. That's why that's one of the reasons why India is so against Christianity. Because they think that the movies where um, they see the women and men living like prostitutes in their minds, and then they think those people are Christians, they think that if they accept Christianity, that they'll be like Westerners. And they'll be, well, don't, they're like, we don't want our daughters to act like prostitutes. Right? Like, that, that's the confusion you see in, all the, in Muslim countries and in traditionalist countries. They don't realize that Christianity is completely different from that. And so Amer- American idolatry has not only hampered the spread of the gospel in this country, it's hampered the spread of the gospel everywhere in the world. And so, I, I mean, I, I would say things a little differently than the way Tom framed them, but I do believe in the providences of God that there is something like what he called a Kairos moment. There's like a, there is going to be a chance for us to step into a gap created by providence and by human sin. And we could fail, like I think the church did at the time of the Civil War. I mean, Mark Knoll said, the reason why America stopped listening to the church in the 1860s and 70s was because the church couldn't decide the issue of slavery definitively, so that we didn't have to go to war as a country, right? And if the church in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, and 50s could have done that, we might have been able to avert a civil war and become really a Christian country in a a meaningful, voluntary way. I think we may be approaching a second one of those, which could be a turning to either socialistic totalitarianism or some other kind of chaotic thing. Who knows what could come out of this? Or the church could be the church and could lead. And I, I think it may happen in all three of our lifetimes. I, I don't know that we're that far away from this moment. Yeah. It may not be 40 years away. It may be three years away. Yeah. It's hard to know. So I have one last question. And for there's a lot of young, young people to listen. What? So what you guys just said, I'm, I, I, I'm hyped. I'm, I'm hyped up because I think, like, I don't know, I just get hyped up. Because I, I like the idea of revival and I think that it's, that it's awesome. So what can, what can young people then do now 
Like, with all that being said, like, what should we focus on? What should young people focus on? I know, I know you kind of talked about making the decision to, to follow Christ, like, and not play video games in your basement or make a lot of money. But, but more specifically, like, like the young people who are Christians, what should we focus on? What can we, what can we do now that can help this, that can help create revival or, or whatever? You know, you know what I mean? What can we do? Second Corinthians eleven three, Paul says, I fear for you, lest as the serpent deceived Eve, so you too be led astray from simple devotion to Christ. The enemy was using secondary issues to divide the church at Corinth. And Paul said, Listen, if any knowledge puffs up but love builds up if any of you thinks he knows something he doesn't yet know as he ought to know but if anyone loves god he is known by him and i think right now the enemy is using secondary issues touching people's pride their opinions are way too strong on social media about everything and i think we all need to soften our opinions it's okay to have an opinion soften it and renewed devotion to Christ as an identity, as a favored son and daughter that's loved by God. We need to know our identity is not based on our performance. We are loved. We are favored because of what Jesus has done. Mm -hmm. But we also have an assignment as the army of God. And it's, it's, it's going to cost us. And every single one of us needs to say to our fear, you know what? If I perish, I perish. <laughs> but I need to be all in. Well, what about this? What about that? What about that? Who cares? Jesus died for me. I need to die for him. Mm-hmm. We need to say yes to our identity and to our assignment, family and army. And if the, if it ever gets complicated, you got off. <laughs> if it ever gets heavy, you've gotten off. Jesus's yoke is easy and his burden is light. Walk with Jesus. He will keep that fire going in your own heart. Revival has to start with you. It, it, whenever revival needs to start, why aren't those people revived? Why isn't the church revived? Why? That, that's going to bring judgment on you. Whoever judges ends up being judged. Right. Just don't worry about them. Jesus died to judge them. You're not their judge. You're not their judge and you're not their savior. And they're not your servant. It, 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 yeah. People love to use Micah 6.8. Let me tell you what Micah 6.8 says. Do justly yourself. Love mercy for others. Give other people the benefit of the doubt. The idea of carrying this anger at everybody else because they're not doing enough or they're not wearing a mask or they're white privilege. It's, that, that's going to lock you into judgment. <laughs> You need to let Jesus judge them, whether they are not anything. Let that let Jesus judge. Do just do what's right yourself. Love mercy for everybody else, and then walk humbly with God yeah. in simple devotion. That is revival in a heart. And let me tell you something about revival. It doesn't it doesn't take an organized evangelism. Not that I'm against behind organized evangelism. If you have a bonfire going, the Holy Spirit will breathe. And brush fires will start. 
and somebody will get saved in that family and totally turn around. And all of a sudden that whole family is being touched and somebody at that workplace gets, gets lit up and all of a sudden evangelism is happening just because a life has changed. When he starts breathing, this is how revival works. He starts breathing and that's why Jesus becomes the talk of the bars because uh, my niece got healed. Uh, I've got a, my, my brother was, was in prison. He was a drug addict and now he's all about Jesus. What's going on with this thing? And, and, and it becomes the talk. This is, this is the sign of awakening where Jonathan Edwards said, um, in his book, the surprising works of God on the first great awakening. Actually, Benjamin Franklin said this, he said, uh, of course, Ben, Benjamin Franklin was a deist, but he said the talk everywhere is about God. And the books that are bought are all books about religion. They're not, nobody's buying anything else. The song, people are entertaining themselves with spiritual songs and hymns. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on in Philadelphia in, in, in the 1740s. It's just, it's, it, it became awake and, and, and heaven, the culture of heaven comes into earth and, but it starts one person at a time, Andy. And so. Yeah, I mean, so so let me take a, a a contemporary idea here. So like, um, I can't I mean I can't think of the scholar's name. There's an African American scholar at Harvard who did, who's done a bunch of research. One of his, one of his latest studies is on um, police brutality, like police of how, how police use force relative to to race. And one of the things he said is he's like, look, the the police use of of deadly force against white and black people. There's no apparent difference between those two in similar situations is but in terms of like roughing kids up and like putting kids in in cuffs that kind of thing it seems to happen more with african-american kids than white kids maybe there's an explanation for it maybe there isn't now he, he said therefore when when there's a widespread belief among african-americans that the police aren't for them think about this the person who lives and gets away to tell his story how many people does he tell that story to like, 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 you know, you rough up one kid and everybody finds out about it, right? And that story might be told for two generations. Okay, now think about that with somebody getting healed. Like, they literally, they're, they're like really sick or something terrible has happened to them. And like, God does something powerful, right? Think how many times that story gets told, right? Something amazing happens and it's not the way things normally happen. What happens is, yeah, that story gets told over and over and over and over again. And some people will be like, ah, oh, that's stupid. There's no way that's true. Just like when people report how they're treated by the police. Some people go, that's stupid, that can't be, be true, I don't believe you. And some people will be like, yeah, 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 right? It'll affect them. Similarly, when things that aren't supposed to happen happen, positively, that's also true. When something of great nobility happens or something supernatural happens, people go, hey, this happened. And it doesn't take that many events for word to really spread. And so, and you can change the milieu and then people will just start listening to the word preached and believing it. And some pretty cool stuff can happen, you know. But I, I think that I think that a lot of stuff have to has to happen. I think part of it is being open to the work of the Spirit. I think the church needs to grow in godliness too. Yeah. I think, and I think some of this will have to do with. I think young people have a. I don't think it's their their job, but I think that they have a place in it. And I think you know I'm not saying they have to stop playing video games altogether. They need to stop wasting dozens of hours a week not cultivating what God wants to cultivate in them because they're easing their, and just enjoying themselves playing video games. And some of them should make a lot of money. I mean, John Wesley said, make as much as you can and save as much as you can so that you can give as much as you can, right? Because the work of God is going to need some people to be very generous to it. And if we're going to love the poor better than the government, right? 
we're going to have to give to the poor and help them. And that, that sacrifice demonstrates that God matters to us and is doing something in our life, right? Um, I want to say one last thing about this whole issue of charismatic in terms of the whole podcast. Um, one of the things that I think was really clear in the, in the proto-charismatic movement, before there was a charismatic movement, with people like Wesley and then uh, a revivalist in the second grade named Finney, was that the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues. It's love. Right? And so the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, our willingness to sacrifice and love others and serve them and exhibit the gift, the fruit of the Holy Spirit as outlined in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All these virtues that come from that transformation is the evidence that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Now, that doesn't mean speaking in tongues can't be evidence that something is happening, that somebody's had an experience. But evidence, you've got to realize that word is functioning with two definitions, Right? Speaking in tongues is evidence that the Spirit is moving right now. But the evidence that the Spirit has done something, is accomplishing something in the heart of a believer, is when that person moves in the fruit of the Spirit, the virtues of God, has a mind renewed by the Spirit in the mind of Christ, and is coming out of conformity with the world, and their life is being increasingly categorized by love toward God in worship, and towards others in sacrificial service. And that is what will... And, and Jesus literally says in John 13, your love for each other as human disciples is the greatest apologetic towards the world as to whether or not I matter. And we love each other first, relative to like our opinions and stuff like like Tom was talking about, secondary issues dividing us because we don't have humility in how we do justice and love mercy, right? But also our willingness to sacrifice and love others, right? In in the letter of, of Pliny, I think it was Pliny the Younger to Trajan, he said like the biggest problem with these Christians is they don't just love each other, they take care of their poor and ours. And it's humiliating to us Romans because of how sacrificial loving they are. But what it meant was they walked around and, and, and babies that Romans had put aside to die, they took home and raised as their own at their own expense. It's that level of sacrifice it, that it, when Christians engage in that, the, it, the, if we do what every other pagan does, if that's the extent of our love, we will n- never get the attention of the world and, and they will not turn to Christ. And let me give my final comments as well, because Nick is referencing the beauty, the beauty of God being released. And that's absolutely true. But it it is also the power. But it's interesting, especially with this topic. Pentecost is not fulfilled with wind, fire, and the wine and tongues. That is not the fulfillment of Pentecost. Pentecost is the celebration of the early harvest coming in. Pentecost doesn't happen until Peter stands up and 3,000 people get saved. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the Spirit's moving, and that's how the, the end, that we had gifts and we had we had manifestations and we had this. Mm-hmm. Guys, that's not Pentecost. Right. Pentecost is actually when the people get saved. Right. So, what, what, so what, what, don't what, stop. Don't stop with you at a good meeting. Right. It, what, it, it yeah, I think people should understand this. What, what Tom is referring to is Pentecost is a celebration from the Old Testament. It was a celebration God told them to have, and it was a celebration of the first harvest the, the of first rain. The first harvest. When right. the barley came in. Right. And, 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 and so you had this big gap from harvest to harvest, and now God had blessed you with food. So you weren't going to starve. This was a great event. And so... Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, comes on the celebration and festival of the first harvest. And what Thomas is saying is, that's not a coincidence, that's a picture. Right? 
the, the movement of the Spirit should produce a harvest. That's why it happens at Pentecost. Yes. And, and, and part of what's happened is charismatics think Pentecost is me having this experience. No. Pentecost isn't fulfilled until 3,000 people get saved. <laughs> so we just need to keep our eye on the ball. That's all. Right. And, and Pentecost begins the harvest, right? Yeah, yeah I, I think that that's true. I think that that's true. Yeah, and, and that's, and, and we're all, and like on that kind of stuff, we're all on the same page. And I, and I want to say this about Luke 11, 30, 13. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? But the, the tense of the word um, ask is, it's not a one-timer. It's ask and ask and ask. The idea that there's like a second end-all experience is crazy. <laughs> this is a life of asking for fresh movings of the Holy Spirit, fresh experiences with the Holy Spirit. We, when we stop asking, we're going to stop receiving. And so... Um, I, I'm very comfortable with Nick and I are great friends. We do ministry together. I haven't preached at our church. We look at it a little different. He doesn't think there's an actual second experience, but we're in agreement. There's a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth, that this mm -hmm. is an ongoing dependence. There is more. We can all ask for more. It may look different depending on your tradition, but please keep asking. Yeah. <laughs> Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual yeah. gifts. Yeah, there's danger to mystically keeping to seek more of God because there's there's ways to, to screw that up. There's ways to like just seek the experience. There, like there's there's ways to get off those tracks. There's also a lot of dangers to just presuming all the time that you have all the Holy Spirit that there <laughs> right. is, and that's all. <laughs> right. Danger. So, so th like there is no there is no like inherently safe position. Right. Like. So yes, you should believe that God in the gospel has freely given you all of His gifts in salvation, including the gift of the Spirit. But that doesn't mean that you don't pursue God in multiple ways, in godliness, in the mind of Christ, and also keeping in step with the Spirit, which would include receiving the Spirit, being moved by the Spirit, being touched by the Spirit. So I, I think that some, if that, and if that leads you to a certain kind of anxiety or disobedience to God's written command, then you're not, then you're not, you should know you're not doing it right. And maybe you need to get some guidance from somebody. And in walking with the Spirit, I think it can be very helpful to look to someone who you think is walking in the Spirit in a way that's mature and still has a flowing heart, to use Tom's metaphor. Um, it isn't weird in a sense that you naturally despise, but that, but you also got to be careful not to be judgmental, yeah. right? And when you, and then to, to allow somebody to help shepherd you through some of those experiences, because it is, in some sense, experimental. Yeah, well, that's the first, when I was just starting, like two years ago, I went to Forgiven and Free, had a bunch of issues, and and Vince like discipled me. I definitely thought Vince was very weird, mm -hmm. and I to this day I think Vince is weird, and he knows that. But th but that but what attracted me towards Vince was like he was just so he was just so not afraid to like share the gospel, and he was not afraid to tell me that he loved me, and like it, it kind of washed away all the weird crap. I was like I don't I don't care that he's weird. I want to be around him yeah. because he's he's got something that I don't have. And I think that that's like that was really cool and it changed my life. And I think, yeah, I think that's a really good point, Nick. Um, did you guys have anything else you wanted to say? Do we pray to stop to end this? We can if you I want. I would love to have a prayer. Let's, yeah, do it. Lord, I thank you for Andy and Nick and for this conversation. And Lord, I I just pray for everyone that has listened that uh, 
you would wake um, hunger for you, hunger for more, not for being right or being exactly right, but for more of Jesus, for more of what you have for us in both gifts and in beauty. Father, I pray for each one that we would collectively, individually and collectively say, God, I want, I sign up not just for your family, but also for your army. Jesus, whatever you want to do, I want to be in step with it. Please, God, thank you for this time. Thank you for these men. Um, bless them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for coming on, Tom. I appreciate it. Um, yeah. So I guess that's it for today. We'll see you guys in the next podcast. Bye.